I want to get into the word of God. We've been in a series on miracles and how and why miracles occur and what can make them happen. And I take this very seriously as a pastor. I want you to know what the supernatural activity of God in your daily lives can be like. And so I pray God help me to communicate to the people of God that you have given me a charge over. Help me to lead them into a realm of understanding where God is not far away like, hey, you up there, Uncle God or whatever. I want people to know the reality of having a God who is close and near at hand. And in this broken world, I've said this over and over in this series as a thesis that you might not need God right now, but at some point in your life, you actually need him all the time, but at some point in your life, you're really going to need his divine intervention. And so we've dug deeper and deeper into this idea that deeper worship leads to God encounters. And many people kind of get the cart in front of the horse and they're going hard after God for a miracle because they're painted into a corner, their backs against the wall, uh, any other euphemism you want, might want to borrow. They're hanging on by the skin of their teeth or their fingernails. They need God and so they're crying, help! And they need a miracle. And the reality is, is that if you go deeper in worship, and you get God to draw near. That miracles are the natural byproduct of God being close at hand. Because the realm he operates in is a supernatural realm. Amen. How many of you have lived long enough to experience what I'm talking about? Any of you? Amen. And um, it's so good to see all of you here. And and I want to greet our online audience too. And thank you for joining us I'm going to turn to a Psalms that I discovered and found when I was just a young man. I had spent several years in, in clubs and bars playing music. And God, I didn't find God. I'm going to tell you point blank, he wasn't lost. I was. He found me. And I hear people say they found God. Mm-mm, no, that wasn't my story. He found me. And it wasn't long after I got saved that I found this this chapter in the, in the book of Psalms, and it has been one of the my favorites ever since then in this journey with God. I had gone all the way from the book of Genesis, and I was reading through, and I came to Second Chronicles where so-and-so beget so-and-so beget so-and-so. And I labored through that and, and finally broke out of that into this. You know, I made my way through uh, Job and, well... All through those books that preceded Psalms. And I came to Psalms 27. And it set my soul ablaze. I want you to listen to it. One thing I have desired of the Lord, David says. Now I could stop right there and preach on that alone. Because if you're going to find God, he needs to be your number one priority. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek. I could stop and preach that too. Because you're going to have to pursue him. David goes on to say that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. 
in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Years ago, I also learned the benefit of praying scripture. And there are people that are eloquent in their ability to express passion. One of those is the writer of uh, the Passion Translation. It's appropriately named, the Passion Translation. Some people argue it's more of an interpretation. That, that's fine. But I like to pray the Psalms. And so as I read through in my morning devotions every day, I will read through the scripture and then I'll turn to the book of Psalm. And even though that's not where I may be in reading through the Bible at that moment, every morning I will read one of the chapters from the book of Psalms. And I, I don't read it, I pray it. And I put myself into the equation as though I were the one writing and not David. And I pray that it has, when I tell you the impact that I experience in some mornings on my devotion is breathtaking when I do that. And I want to read this from the Passion Translation and I'm going to read it as though it were me and not David. Here's the one thing I crave from you, God. The one thing I seek above all else, I want the privilege of living with you every moment in your house. Finding the sweet loveliness of your face, filled with awe, delighting in your glory and grace. I want to live my life so close to you that you take pleasure in my every prayer. In your shelter in the day of trouble, that's where you'll find me, God. For you hide me there in your holiness. You have smuggled me into your secret place where I'm safe and secure. Out of reach of all of my enemies. <laughs> you don't think that has set your day off on the right foot? Oh yeah. And in James chapter 4 verse 8. James writes, and I used this a couple of weeks ago. When I taught part one of the theology of presence. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God has promised us that if we will pursue after him and draw near to him, that he in turn will come near to us. I want to speak today from part two of the theology of presence. Father, I ask that you would help me to make this what I feel to be one of the most important and significant of all topics that we can discuss. Make it very real to the people of God. Help them to understand some of the fundamental things that are so vital and helpful in growing a relationship with you. I know the way that it has impacted me. And I could only pray and wish that you would allow the same thing to happen to them. So I ask for you to do this by your anointing in Jesus name. And everybody shouted and said, amen. amen. I've always thought that Psalms 27 is not only Psalms 27 is not only an incredible word from God. It is one of the most eloquent and beautiful examples of literature that I've ever read. I absolutely love the passion that David, the author expresses in this Psalm for God. Something deep inside of me just goes to resonating when I read these words. The soaring, lifting, poetic, melodic language that David employs here 
as he unabashedly seeks to express his love for God and his great desire to be continually in God's presence moves me powerfully. I relate to it. I think we all do. I think created in every individual, there is a fundamental need that we might not even recognize. I've said it many times. You've heard others say it. But we have a need to be in connection and in relationship with God. The environment of his presence is the environment that we were created to thrive in. In him, we live, we move, and we have our being. That's as much our environment, his presence is, as water is for a fish. As mortals, we were created to be there. And nothing short of that will ever satisfy us. It can't. We try all the time, don't we? To satisfy that need within us with all kind of things. Money, fame, possessions, power, pleasure. We've tried so many things. Every single one of them without exception falls short. I'm speaking from experience. Only in knowing him and being in relationship with him and then being in his presence only then can we ever be fully satisfied and it actually takes all three of those things knowing him being in relationship with him and being in his presence i personally am convinced yeah that most believers get the first two but not the third that is, they understand about knowing God and about being in relationship with him. But the ability to constantly abide in the presence of the Lord is something that many believers have never discovered. They, they simply haven't learned how yet. But I believe that it is vital. A.W. Tozer, one of the great Christian mystics, said it this way. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. Boy, that doesn't tell it. When we read these verses from the 27th Psalm, we see David's great hunger to know and live in the presence of God. David was on to something. Suppose you could live every day of your life in the presence of God, not just visit him at church, not just have a high in a prayer meeting or a devotional experience. Suppose you could live in the presence of God. One would say, possibly, that there are problems with this text. As beautiful as this psalm is, we could say that David faced a very serious dilemma Insofar as his desire to be in God's presence, be in the house of God, be behind the veil in the secret place. That was literally what he was asking for. We might want to call this David's impossible dream. Let me explain. It was commendable that David desired to be in the God's presence, but frankly, it wasn't likely to ever happen. In fact, it was pretty unlikely. The problem was is that David was of the tribe of Judah. It's a simple problem. Priests were required to be of the tribe of Levi. David was not of the right ancestral lineage. His desire to minister to God in the tabernacle 
appeared to be literally an impossible dream that he could never in his lifetime ever hope to see fulfilled, yet he audaciously expressed the desire to do so anyway and to enter that revered and holy place of all, which was behind the veil. And further, he even stated that he wanted to live there. That's pretty wild. Considering that the high priest only went there once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. And then some scholars say for only maybe 15 minutes. Amen. Have you ever felt excluded or left out or passed over and dreamed a dream that somebody kept telling you? Others kept trying to say, that that can't happen. I'm sorry. Come on, let's be grounded in reality here. It seems that David was doomed to fail in his quest because frankly, he was not born into the tribe of Levi. I am convinced, however, that David came to understand something about God that most people failed to grasp. And I think that's the secret to understanding these verses. It was an understanding that I believe that David came to because he was a worshiper. You see, when you're a worshiper, you discover and see things that other people don't see. I just have to tell you that. If when you sing, you sing to the ceiling or you sing about God or you sing to the choir, the praise team, you know, you don't get the same thing out of this that the person sitting next to you gets that sings directly to the Lord, which is why I'm talking about going deeper in worship. Amen. David, I think, came to understand this, some things in scripture and therefore this Psalm is an expression of what he came to understand. It, it gives you a way to grasp a revelation that I think that David came to. Because David was, above everything else, he was a worshiper. He was. He was a worshiper. Back in the day, he kept his father's sheep. He had done so from the time he was a lad. And the shepherds at night on the Judean hills, don't forget there were wolves back in the day. There were lions, there were bears. You won't find those in the Middle East now, but they existed then. And the shepherds would sing to their flock and they would play musical instruments at night. So the sheep would be calmed and they could go to sleep. And so they would play a lute, which was kind of like a guitar. And they would play a flute and and they would sing and And while all of the other shepherds were out there trying to sing the the latest top 40 hits and pretending they were on The Voice or Israel's Got Talent or something, David was composing worship songs and singing those to God. How cool is that? And so from the time that he was a little fella, David was a worshiper. And I think he came into a state of revelation that many people even today, or have not fully grasped. You see, because worshipers receive revelation that people who don't worship never understand. Amen. Some things you just have to be a worshiper to get. God makes your understanding come alive as you worship. And you see things that other people don't see. I'm telling you, you, that is because God is truth. And when you worship and draw near to him, he draws near to you. And John 16, 13 says this, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. You go into a place of understanding that 
If you're not a worshiper, it just doesn't happen to you the same way. The word comes alive when you're a worshiper. Because David was a worshiper, what I think that he came to grasp was that he discovered God's original intention for mankind. And I think that if we go back to the beginning, maybe I might be able to help you see what I'm talking about. When God created humanity, he created humanity, all of humanity, to be in relationship with him and to be in the environment of his presence. And then something happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And because they did, sin entered into the genetic makeup of their descendants. And so God, who wanted a relationship with all of the human race, has now been thwarted. And sin has separated mankind from God. So God then says, if I can paraphrase it like this and use language we might be comfortable using in terms of our own understanding, his thoughts are much higher. I get that. And so I'm going to try to break it down in, you know, our everyday kind of vernacular. From the descendants of Adam and Eve, God said, okay, if I can't have the whole human race, what I'll do is I'll start a nation and I will be in relationship and in covenant with this nation and they will walk in my presence. And so he chose Abraham and Sarah, two of the most unlikely of all candidates from which to build a nation. Unlikely because Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Get this. And she had been barren her whole life. I love it. You know, <laughs> Sarah puts on her best negligee and, and sashays in in front of Abraham. He said, move, mama. I can't see the widescreen. You're in the way. <laughs> Nothing's going on in their house, if you'll just allow me to say it like that. He's 100. She's 90. But because they believe the promise of God, they received a promised child by the name of Isaac. You see, when you trust God's promises, God moves beyond the realm of impossibilities and begins to make the impossible become possible. And from Isaac, two children were born to he and Rebekah, and one was Esau, the other Jacob. Jacob got the birthright, and so the patriarchal lineage is counted through Jacob, and he had 12 sons. God sent them and their descendants into Egypt where they could become a nation, and when they had become a mighty nation, some say two and a half million people or more, up to three and a half million. God called them out of Egypt. Now remember, this is God's plan. If I can't be in relationship with all of humanity, I'll take a nation and I'll be in relationship with them and reveal my purposes through this nation. So God calls them out of Egypt to meet with them, meet with him on Mount Horeb, what we would call Mount Sinai. And out Mount, out Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, out Mount Horeb, all of Israel saw the manifest glory of God and literally heard the voice of God. That's important because Adam and Eve once had heard the voice of God in the garden, but lost the ability to hear spiritually, the ability to see spiritually. And now this entire nation is watching this be restored to them. They can see the manifest presence of God. Many people think that only Moses saw the manifest presence of God or heard the voice of God. Not so. The entire nation of Israel did. From Moses on down through the Levites, through uh, the Ephraimites, through the Manassites and the Gadites and all of the rest of them. 
The people of Judah, they all saw the manifest presence of God. And you know what they did? They were terrified. And they turned and they started running and didn't stop for 22 miles. That's what we're told. And they begged Moses, Moses, you go into the mountain. We can't stand this. We're terrified this. We don't want to hear this voice anymore. You go talk with God and you come back and tell us what he said. And so the God who wanted a relationship with all of humanity, but was denied because of sin, who then said, I'll start a nation and be in relationship with them and they will know my presence. Now is watching the nation run. And so God says, I tell you what, if I can't have all of humanity and I can't have a nation, I'll take a tribe from that nation. And Moses, since you're of the tribe of Levi and Aaron is your brother and he's your, your voice piece, he's your older brother, the head of the Levites, I'll choose the tribe of Levi and you will be my tribe of priests. And so Moses is alone in the presence of, uh, of God for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes down only to find that Aaron, the leader of the tribe of the Levites, his older brother who has the birthright, has created a golden calf for the Israelites, reminiscent of the gods they worshipped in Egypt, the idols, and they're all dancing and worshipping around this golden calf. And Moses is carrying the law of God that had been carved into two tables of stone with the fingertip of God. And as he comes down the mountain, he sees this, and in anger, he picks it up and slams it on the ground and breaks it. Because now God has been denied not only relationship with all of humanity, And with the nation, but now the leader of the tribe of the Levites has been complicit in the sin. And now God's denied relationship with the tribe of Levi. But that's okay because God's still got a man, right? And so if I can't have humanity and I can't have the nation and I can't have the tribe, still got you, Moses. And I can still relate to mankind. Come back up in the mountain, Moses. Moses goes back. He has not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He goes back into the mountain another 40 days and 40 nights. He's supernaturally sustained by God without food, without water. And this tells me something incredible. I mentioned this point because when you are in the presence of God and in the supernatural realm, things happen that don't make any sense. Things happen that look impossible. Hello, somebody. Moses came down from the mountain. His face was glowing because the residue of the glory of God was upon him. Not unlike what happened with Adam and Eve when they left the garden. People live with the residue of God's glory upon them because they had been in his presence. People live for hundreds of years. You wonder why? I believe it was because of the lingering afterglow of the presence of God. That's me. That's what I believe. And Moses came down with that afterglow and came to the camp of Israel. And God said, I got you. Okay, so I couldn't have humanity and I couldn't have a tribe and I couldn't have, or rather a nation and I couldn't have a tribe, but I got you. Kind of like that old, (laughs) I'm not going to say, yeah, I am. Sonny and Cher song, I got you, babe, amen. And so I got you, Moses. And there were two times... In the wilderness, whenever Israel 
murmured and complained because of a lack of water. You remember the first, was it Meribah? And so God told Moses, take the staff and strike this rock and water will come from it. And Moses did. And when the water gushed out, it became a river. Isaiah said, it turned the wilderness into a river and it blossomed like a rose. So copious were the amounts of water that came forth. And so they remember what God could do. And then they came to another place. And because Israel has been obstinate and in unbelief. And in spite of all the miracles they've seen. They still don't trust God. They complain again at another dry place. And this time God says, Moses, first time you struck the rock, this time speak to it. And Moses walks up to the rock and takes that staff. And he is so mad. He is fuming because he's fed up to hear with the obstinacy of the nation of Israel and their stubbornness and their unbelief. And he says, you rebels. And he strikes the rock and water gushes forth from it. And God says, you messed up Moses. I couldn't have humanity and I couldn't have a nation and I couldn't have a tribe. And now I've even lost you. And because of your sin, you're not even going to be able to go into the promised land. And so what we're going to have to do, Moses, one man a year, instead of living in my presence, is going to go behind the veil for a few minutes, once a year on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the Jewish calendar, the day of atonement. And I want to show you what could have been for all of humanity. I'm going to show you what all of mankind could have known or since they didn't want it, all of Israel, but since they didn't want it, what the tribe of priests could have had. And in that one time a year, man's going to go behind the veil, carrying blood. He's going to first have to atone for himself and he's going to go behind the veil and pour the blood on the mercy seat. And in those few minutes, he is literally going to open heaven over the nation of Israel for an entire calendar year. And they will walk in prosperity and in abundance and peace and in the supernatural. And I will be with them and I will defend them and I will be their covering and I will be their protection all because of what happened for 15 minutes. And the reason I stress that is, can you imagine what man could be walking in if everybody had... You got to get this. Could you imagine what you and I could experience if instead of sin, Adam and Eve had said yes to God? Could you imagine what the nation of Israel could have experienced if all of us were to learn to walk in God's manifest presence, not 15 minutes, one day a year, but throughout the entire year, what could it do to our families? It's unbelievable when you think about it. And so we look at this story, you might wonder, well, why did God penalize Moses so severely for striking the rock? I mean, he was human, goodness, we all make mistakes and he was fed up after 40 years, wouldn't you be fed up too? I get it, I really do. But you see, what Moses didn't grasp at that point was the typology involved. That rock was Christ. And when he struck the rock, it depicted the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Christ only needed to be struck once and die. From that time forward, you don't strike the rock, you speak to the rock. It shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Amen. And Moses violated the typology involved. One of the questions I have for God when I see him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him, What did that do 
Maybe that, that spear thrust into the side of our Lord was not even necessary. But when Moses struck the rock, that last time he added to the indignities that Jesus had to suffer, that he would not have had to have suffered. And so let me restate what happened. God wanted all of humanity to be in relationship with. And then because of sin, we shut him off. And then God says, well, okay, I'm not going to give up because I'm faithful. And so I'll take a nation and I'll start a nation. But then the nation ran from God. And God said, got it. I'll take a tribe. But then they sinned. And then God said, still got you, Moses. I'll take one man. And then Moses sinned. And God said, okay, I'll take a man 15 minutes, one day a year. And he can walk in my presence and model what it will look like if you walk with me daily. You can open heaven over your life and over your family and over your children and over your your business. Amen. An amazing thing. Now back to David in Psalms 27. You see, I believe that David by revelation came to understand this original purpose and intention of God. He figured it out. He got close enough to God's heart that he saw what others had not seen. People have all kind of reasons why they say that David was a man after God's own heart. This is actually why I believe this is said about David. I believe the scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. And God said that about him, by the way. Because David sought God enough that he came to understand what God's original purpose for mankind was. Amen. The church would not grasp it for many, many, many years. Amen. A thousand years after David, finally Simon Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Who? All of us. Wait a minute. I'm not of the tribe of Levi. Yes, but you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were meant to be a priest unto God. All of us were. Amen. You see what David did was he tapped into a higher order of priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. He tapped into the order of Melchizedek. By worship and revelation he got close enough to know God. That he saw what God's original intention was. That you and I, all of us in this building were created for the purpose of ministering to him and living daily in his presence. And so when David placed the ark of God in his tabernacle at Mount Zion, you remember David went to the house of Obed-Edom and brought the ark of God up. But when he placed it in the tabernacle, guess what he did not do? He did not put a veil in place. Amen. Instead, he put the ark of God and surrounded it with 288 worshipers and 4,000 musicians. And they worship God in shifts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 12 months a year. And they worshiped because where people worship, there is no veil between them and God. You got to get what I'm saying. When you worship, God pulls the veil back and looks out and says, I'm coming out to where you're at. I'm coming to be with you. We're talking about this in the context of the supernatural. 
And so, so many times we're seeking God for a miracle when what we ought to do is go deeper in worship because when God pulls the veil back, I want to tell you something. Miracles happen in the presence of Almighty God. Give God some praise in this house if you would. Hallelujah. I feel the presence of the Lord here so strong. David was in violation of the Mosaical order. There should have been a veil there, but he understood what others did not. That if I worship, I can remove the veil. And I want to tell you that if your relationship with God seems like there's something between you and him, if you will worship, God will tear the veil down and he will manifest his presence in your life. If you need God to show up, all you got to do is begin to worship him. And when you do, God's going to come out. And when he steps into the place, demonic spirits begin to tremble. Hallelujah. Somebody give God some praise in this house. I feel a breakthrough coming for somebody. All Jesus had to do was show up and the demons inside of the the man at the tombs of Gadara said, tell us where to go. We'll leave. I'm talking to somebody. I feel it in the Holy Spirit. Allow me to just follow after God. Who am I talking to that has a long-standing and persistent and unrelenting enemy present in their life? God can set you free from whatever it is that you are facing. All you've got to do is get in his presence. Hallelujah. 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 Somebody's about to have a breakthrough right now. When Jesus would walk into a room, demons would start looking for the exit. And whenever God steps into your life, whatever your persistent problem is that won't let go, all you've got to do is get Jesus to show up, walk in the presence of God and watch what happens. What really struck me about this story regarding David's passion for God is the effect it had on his children. It had a pronounced impact upon his kids. Some of David's children were as dysfunctional as David had been earlier in his life. Don't we always have a sanctified view of the characters of the Bible? We forget their raw humanity. We forget how screwed up some of them were. David was not 
the kind of person that many of us think he was. We think he was perfect from his childhood. And he had one little mishap with Bathsheba and Uriah. No, David was raised in what I believe to be a dysfunctional home life. There are some scholars who believe that David was the illegitimate son of Jesse. Let that sink in. God tells Samuel, go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem and anoint the next king because Saul, you know, I'm done with him. He rejected me. I rejected him. So Samuel shows up in Bethlehem and goes to Jesse's house. And he said, I want you to bring all your boys here because the Lord has sent me to anoint one of them to be king. And Jesse brings in seven good looking young men. And Samuel looks at the first and says, surely the Lord's anointed is standing in front of me. And God said, you're looking at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And he goes down the line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And Samuel said, nope, Jesse, God sent me here to anoint one of your sons. I ask you to bring all of your kids here, all of your boys. Is this all you have? And Jesse got. I got one more. We don't talk about him much. He's taking care of his father's sheep. Samuel said, go get him. And when David came in, the Lord said, that's the one I've chosen. And I love this about God. I want to ask you again, have you ever been passed over? Have you ever been, ever been overlooked? Have you ever been omitted? Have you ever been excluded? Has somebody ever told you, settle down, it can't happen? Let me tell you, God knows what's in your heart. God sees what he put inside of you. God can develop from you things that will blow your mind. I'm talking to somebody in this building. Breakthrough is coming into your life. I'm sorry. I feel something happening in this building. Lord, help us. Have your way in this place today. Amen. Apparently, David grew up with a few hangups. And they were manifest in his relationship with his own oldest children. You talk about screwed up. His kids were screwed up. He had a son named Amon who raped his own sister Tamar, one of David's daughters. How bad is that? And then when David would not address it, David had another son, brother to Amon Amon and Tamar. Who killed Ammon because his daddy would not deal with the issue in their house. The elephant in the room. And then Absalom overthrew his own father and led a rebellion that broke David's heart. Before Absalom was finally killed in the revolt. And then as if that's not bad enough. You see because every one of these guys saw what David did with Bathsheba and with his best friend Uriah. We get the idea that Uriah was some stranger, David, hardly knew, not, not likely. He was one of David's top 30 men in the wilderness. They were buds. They were close. 
And David took that man's wife and then had him murdered. And those kids saw that. And that dysfunction was passed on to them. Can I say a word to every mom and dad in this place? Get your act together for your children if for nobody else. I know there's some stuff out there. I know you've got some issues to work through, but it's better to work through it and save your family than it is to allow the dysfunction to be multiplied into the next generation. The next generation, David's kids I'm talking about, broke their daddy's heart. But you know the crazy thing about it is that David seemed to have got it together near the end. I I grieve for David. I do because my job is to work with people. And I grieve for people that go through this. He had another son that while David is on his deathbed, his name was Adonijah. He crowned himself king. And two of David's best friends that had stood with him all during the rough and tumble years. Joab and Abiathar the priest, they sided with Adonijah. And David had to lean up on his elbow using what little strength he had. (sighs) And feeble, he had to say, bring Solomon and put him on my white mule. And he had to declare Solomon king in place of Adonijah. And that was one of the last acts of his life. It's heartbreaking because friends betrayed him, children betrayed him. He dealt with, with dysfunction in his own family because he would not address his. But finally, at the end of his life, he seemed to be getting his act together. And David, though he had not been a great dad, turned out at the end to be a pretty fair one. And when I tell you that David's revelation, and this blows my mind, that God uses imperfect people. As imperfect as David was, God received his worship because through worship and the word, what happens is you build a relationship with God and more and more and more as you move through life, you begin to model the heart of God. And near the end of David's life, this astonishing thing was occurring. I've told you before, look, this is my job, so I'm not not boasting. You don't want a pastor who doesn't read the Bible. You got your job, I got my job. I love mine. I hope you like yours. I read the Bible through several times a year and I love to read parallel translations. That is, I always use the King James or the New King James as my basic study guide. And then I'll read one chapter in it as I'm going through the Bible. And I read 15 chapters in each a day, but I go through the King James and then what I'll do is I'll I'll read through another translation at the same time. So it may be the message, it may be the Passion Translation, it may be the New Living Translation, it could be the any number of things, but My standard is the King James. And if I find something in one of these other translations that makes me raise my eyebrows, I go back to see what the King James said. And so I'll read a chapter here and then this one, then I move on to the next and then the next. And so I'll go through the Bible, you know, four times a year that way. And like I said, that's not boasting. Don't want you to think that I'm holier than you. Like I said, you would not want a pastor who did not read the Bible. 
There are too many of those kind of guys in the pulpit right now. And I don't mean that unkindly. I just, it is a fact. Amen. And I read this and I was reading the message alongside the King James. And I read in 2 Samuel 8, 18, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. Whoa. I stopped. I was offended. What do you mean David's sons were priests? David is of the tribe of Judah. Judah, there is no way his sons could have been priests. You're wrong, Eugene Peterson. I was ready to send him an email. The problem is he's already dead. And so I went back to the King James, and this is what it said in the King James. It said that David's sons were chief rulers. I said, I got you, Eugene Peterson. I got you. And just to be sure, I went to the new King James and it said David's sons were chief ministers. And I said, wait, that's, that's a little different. It's looking strange now. But I took it to mean like they were chief ministers, like ministers in government. And so I said, I better research this a little bit more. So I went to the New Living Translation and it said David's sons served as priestly leaders. And I said, I'm not getting anywhere with this. I'm going to get my Strong's Concordance out. And I'm going to look at the original Hebrew word that was used here. And I did. And what I saw blew my mind. Because the original Hebrew word that is used is Kohen or Kohenin. Kohanan is the plural of the word Kohen. It said David's sons became Kohen. They became Kohanan. They became priests. And I thought, oh my God. That just violated everything I ever thought I knew about the Bible. How can somebody from the tribe of Levi become a priest? Here's what I come to tell you as I close. Because David walked in the presence of God. He kicked open a door for his children that they never would have been able to enter had he not been a worshiper. And I close today by saying this. I'm talking to somebody in this house. You don't know it, but that son that you think is so far from God, it's not too far if you will keep on walking with God. That daughter that you think is beyond hope. Hello, somebody, that husband that you don't think will ever get saved. If you will keep on worshiping and serving God and believing God, something is about to happen. Give God some praise one more time. Hallelujah. 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 David pursued God. And because he, stand with me across the building. David pursued God and because he pursued God, his descendants leapfrogged from where they were into a dimension of opportunity they never would have been able to discover by themselves. And you don't know it, but you being here in the house of God and serving God and living for God every day and walking with God, God's not only blessing you, you're opening heaven over your kids. You're opening heaven over your family. You're opening heaven over your finances. 
You're making possible opportunities that they may never walk in otherwise. I didn't come from a good background. My grandmother's family, they were cutthroats, murderers. I'm serious. They made the front page of Newsweek magazine and Time magazine. Ellender Bridge incident. Look it up. Lake Charles. Labor Union. Lake Charles. They were the heads of the labor union. It was mafia controlled. The Jupiter incident. That was my family. But my grandmother at the age of 17, her brother, the dad of all those boys I'm talking about, he went to prison for murder. But you know what happened? My grandmother walked into a Brush Arbor meeting where they didn't even have a church. It was just some branches of trees stuck in the ground and a little roof of limbs laid over the top of it. And she gave her heart to God and she turned our family on a dime. She she positioned me she positioned some of the other members of my family and I'm telling you you've got the opportunity to do the same thing in this place as you serve God doors are opening doors are opening doors that would have been closed to the next generations or opening because you gave your heart to God and because you're a worshiper and you're a God chaser. And so don't ever stop chasing God. Don't ever stop pursuing God. Don't ever stop going after God. Every head is bowed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. There's nothing too hard for God. Miracles happen in His presence. And for some of you, those miracles will be in family members. An estranged daughter is coming back home. I feel that in the spirit. An estranged daughter is coming back home. 